This is an ABC podcast. Hi, I'm Kylie Morris, and on RN, this is Between the Lines. We received in excess of 20,000 emails and tens of thousands of voicemails and texts, which saturated our offices and we were unable to work, at least communicate. But at home, we have various groups come by and they have had video panel trucks with videos of me proclaiming me to be a pedophile and a pervert and a corrupt and politician, blaring loudspeakers in my neighborhood and arguing and threatening with neighbors and with myself. We had a daughter who was gravely ill, who was upset by what was happening outside. So it was disturbing. That's Rusty Bowers, Republican Speaker of the Arizona House of Representatives, with part of his testimony to the January 6th insurrection hearings in Congress this week. In a moment, I'll be joined by The Washington Post's Olivia Knox to find out who else has appeared before the committee and what they said. Then later, a look at this week's Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting in Rwanda. For Prime Minister Albanese, it was probably one too many high-level international meetings to attend in a short space of time, so he won't be going. But what is he missing out on? And just what is the purpose and place of Chogham in the world today? To discuss, I'll be joined by historian Cindy McCreary. And then to the Pacific. Is Australia and other big powers guilty of overlooking and underestimating Pacific Island nations' agency, ability and autonomy? Stephen Ratsuva from the University of Canterbury says yes and explains why there's a patronising attitude at play in the Pacific. But first, let's head to the US and Washington, D.C. There's been more damning testimony this week in Washington at congressional hearings into the January 6 riots. But you'd likely not recognise the names of the witnesses. Some were electoral volunteers, others local politicians. But their contributions have shed more light on the extent to which Donald Trump was prepared to go to hold on to power even after he'd lost the 2020 election to Joe Biden. Olivier Knox hosts The Daily 202 at The Washington Post. Olivier, some compelling characters this week. Who's stayed with you? Uh, a couple of the, the witnesses from, from this week really stayed with me. Uh, one was uh, Rusty Bowers, the Arizona House Speaker, a longtime uh, Donald Trump fan, someone who said that, in fact, he would vote for him again. But Bowers detailed how he felt that uh, Donald Trump's demands that he change uh, the results of the, of the elections in Arizona were unsupported by any evidence, were unconstitutional, and were counter to, as he put it, his very being. Uh, Bowers was very compelling. And then there was the, uh, the, the really human, extremely, extremely difficult testimony of Shea Moss. Um, Ms. Moss is a former Georgia election worker whom Donald Trump falsely accused of perpetrating voter fraud. Um, she uh, is a former election worker because she was deluged with a massive campaign of online and in-person harassment. Uh, she, she said rather dramatically that there is no place now where she feels safe. Um, and it gave you, both of these gave you a, a real sense of just how far Donald Trump was prepared to go to overthrow this election. Olivia, you mentioned Rusty Bowers. He's an older man, isn't he? And, and there were moments at which he read from his diaries. He talked about the uh, the protesters appearing before his house every Saturday now, um, hurling abuse. He talked about armed protesters threatening his neighbours uh, and the fact that his wife and terminally ill daughter were inside the house at the time and how stressful that was. It did, as you say, give a, a human face to the experiences of some of these witnesses. It did. We also had a similar account from Brad Raffensperger, the Georgia Secretary of State, that is to say, the state's uh, senior most elections official, uh, Mr. Raffensperger detailed the, as he described it, the sexualized threats made to his wife shortly after he refused 
Donald Trump's entreaties. You'll you'll remember uh, Raffensperger was one of the players in an amazing hour-long phone call from Donald Trump in which Donald Trump threatened him, cajoled him, and begged him to find the votes that would overturn the result in Georgia. A it was Repu- the exact number of votes, wasn't it, Olivia? It was how many? It was, he would have needed, it was basically one. one more. It was one more to avoid a tie. Um, but but it was a remarkable that that uh, that phone call was really quite remarkable. But so was Raffensperger's testimony, really putting putting a, a you know a human face on that. But he talked about just also talked about the avalanche of threats. Again, th- what's really striking about these hearings is witness after witness uh, is Republican. I mean, there have been a handful who are not, but for the most part, the people who are being called to testify to the lengths to which Donald Trump would go are Republicans. In fact, some of them, like Bowers, have have said even since January 6th, that they would vote for Donald Trump again if he were the nominee in 2024. It is interesting, isn't it, given that right-wing outlets like Fox uh, have painted these hearings as a kind of partisan sideshow driven by democratic ill will. But as you described, the the kind of earth-shaking testimony that's emerging is coming from these stalwart Republican figures. Including former Attorney General Bill Barr. I mean, he was he was a pretty interesting witness. He didn't appear in person. They showed snippets of his videotaped deposition, but he said uh, that there was no evidence of the kind of voter fraud that Donald Trump was alleging. He said that he felt the former president had gone off the rails with these accusations. Now, he he has shown what I will call charitably personal flexibility because he spent most of 2020 making the same kinds of false allegations of fraud. But it was still really telling to hear Bill Barr under oath say that the the, the former president's charges were nonsense, uh, dangerous nonsense at that. And so it's been, I mean, it's it's been amazing. I understand why Fox is doing what they're doing. But again, one of the most notable parts of this is that it's it's the Republicans vastly outnumber the, uh, the other folks when it comes to witnesses before the January 6th committee. Olivier, when this congressional series of congressional hearings was announced, it was focused, it seemed, on the January 6th riots. But the past week, it's been more about, rather than about, you know, the damage to the Capitol, injuries to those protecting it, it's really moved on to this administrative attempt by President Trump to bend the election results to his will. Is there much more to come along those lines? Uh, yes, I think they're going to stick to that to that pattern. I mean, if you have to look at this, I think, as uh, January 6th being seen as the culmination of a months-long public and private campaign by President Trump to cast out on the election if he lost and to subvert it uh, when he lost. And so the fact that he is still remaining very much uh, uh, front and center, you know, they want to talk about how he was personally involved. They want to talk about uh, the, the length to which he would go. So we expect them to uh, to stay uh, on on this theme. There's a hearing, uh, an upcoming hearing uh, on on Thursday that's going to feature several former senior Justice Department officials: Jeff Rosen, former acting Attorney General; Richard Donahue, former acting Deputy Attorney General; and Stephen Engel, another senior official in Donald Trump's Justice Department. And part of this, I suspect, is going to focus on all the pressure that Donald Trump put on the Justice Department and on Bill Barr to uh, find this non-existent uh, evidence of of considerable voter fraud. Uh, So it's going to stay focused on him. What's the end game for this committee? Are Are they looking to build a criminal case against President Trump? Well, they will have nothing to do with a criminal case other than gathering the thread for it. You know, they've gathered all these witness statements. They've gathered all these depositions. They've had all this testimony. One useful way of thinking about these hearings is as the Senate impeachment trial that Donald Trump never got. You'll remember that uh, the House of Representatives impeached Donald Trump about a week after uh, the, uh, the January 6th insurrection. In fact, that was the charge, incitement of insurrection. Uh, the, that that moved over to the Senate for the trial. The Republicans blocked calling witnesses, and so you had a, a very speedy process in which he was acquitted along party lines, basically along party lines. So this is actually looks a lot like the impeachment trial that he never got over January sixth. Uh, that said, one of their audiences is rather clearly, in addition to the court of public opinion, one of their other audiences is rather clearly Attorney General Merrick Garland. Um, who's been said to be pursuing investigations into January 6th as well. So while the committee itself um, will have will, will not be bringing any kind of charges, it can't, and it's not what it does, 
uh, they could certainly shape a case against Donald Trump. What of the Republicans on the committee, Olivier, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, is this likely the last act of their political careers? Is this kind of Republican suicide to be seen sitting adjacent to Democrats raising questions over President Trump's behaviour? In, in the case of Congressman Kinzinger, he's announced that he's retiring, so he will not be coming back to the House of Representatives, at least not uh, not this, in this cycle. Uh, you know, I don't know that it's, it's the end of his political career. He certainly wouldn't want to be in a position uh, where he had to compete in a House primary against another Republican, um, because the the way to run against him would be would be rather obvious. So in that sense, uh, it's the end of his House career. We'll see whether he gets the next act in in public policy or in politics. For uh, for Liz Cheney, things are a bit more complicated because uh, Donald Trump has endorsed a primary opponent against her, um, and so now it's a question of whether she can put together um, the the on the ground uh, campaign that defeats a challenger endorsed by Donald Trump. And it's still, I mean, this is a tedious cliche at this point, but it still is very much Donald Trump's party. He's still its leader. Um, And so she has a real fight on her hands. Last time I looked, she wasn't polling that well, but uh, it really depends who turns out in, in November. What about the the dangers for Congress's reach and reputation? I mean, these hearings, they've gone big with these hearings. If this all amounts to naught, does that effectively then damage their ability or their reputation for you know holding power to account? Well, I have I have uh, joked a little darkly in in past comments that uh, Protestantism might might be the most popular religion in America, but the national religion is actually elite impunity. Um, I, I I don't think so, and I don't think so for for the following reason. Um, you know, there have been high stakes hearings before that didn't end up in any kind of a prosecution. Um, you can say, you know, there was the impeachment of, of Bill Clinton. Did Congress's reputation falter after that? A little bit, a little bit. Uh, voters certainly punished Republicans. Uh, but if you go back farther, you know, Iran-Contra didn't, the Iran-Contra hearings didn't lead to a uh, any kind of uh, significant uh, uh, legal jeopardy for the president. For others, it did, but not for the president. So we've we've done this before. We've done sort of high-profile hearings before. It is, in a time of incredible political polarization in America, it is hard to imagine a repeat of the Watergate hearings, where the mere prospect of these hearings uh, and the fact that Republicans will be breaking away from the president led Richard Nixon to resign. It's very hard to imagine that happening today. Are we hearing from Donald Trump at all throughout this? Is he? I know he doesn't tweet quite as much as he used to, but are there releases from you know Trump Central responding to what's going on? Is he out on Fox talking about it? Uh, he has uh, come out a couple of times. Uh, in my inbox are a number of uh, written statements from the former president uh, coming from his Save America PAC. Uh, he has railed against the committee. A um, couple of different lines of attack. One is that it's a pardon, partisan circus. The other is that it's not focused on the problems that are most on the minds of Americans, things like inflation, gas prices, and the like. Uh, but recently, he took a different tack, which was he complained about the lack of Republicans who were loyal to him on the committee. And he seemed to be complaining about the House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy of California, uh, who decided uh, to withhold Republican participation with the committee after uh, Democrats rejected his proposed members um, uh, you know, some months ago. Uh, so he's now complaining that there's no voice for him uh, on this committee, and he seems to be holding it against the, the man that most people think uh, would have a very, very good shot at being the Speaker of the House if Republicans retake the House in November. Is this going to have any impact on the midterms, do you think? Do you, is it, will these memories linger long uh, come November when voters have to choose again between Democrats and Republicans? Well, this is the question everyone's asking. I have not seen good data on whether these are changing American minds. I will tell you um, that one of the reasons that Donald Trump talks about how the, the, the Democrats are not 
uh, are doing this instead of going after inflation is that inflation is the number one issue on American minds today. So um, I have not seen any recent polling that says that the threat Donald Trump poses to the republic is the number one issue on voters' minds. I suspect for Democrats who are already sounding the alarm, this will be uh, this will be important. But I actually think there are a couple other things coming our way that will have a bigger impact on the midterm elections. One of them is a Supreme Court decision that is expected to overturn, uh, uh, effectively overturn Roe versus Wade, the decision that made abortion legal in, in America. I think that's going to be a much more motivating factor for Democratic voters um, than, than these hearings. And I don't get a sense that, uh, frankly, that Republicans are tuning in these hearings at all. So, um, you know, any, I guess every little bit counts. The last election was decided by a fairly small number of voters in a, in a handful of states. Um, so, so I don't want to discount it completely, but voters are focused on other things. And then there are more, uh, more significant events coming that I think will have more of a political impact than this did. Olivia, you said that you, you don't get the sense that it's cutting through potentially with Republican supporters or Republicans themselves uh, outside of DC. But what's the atmosphere in DC itself? You know, you and I were speaking, it's a company town. Are these hearings the talk of every bar, of school pickup, of, you know, queues at Starbucks? Is the latest character, the latest testimony on everyone's lips? Well, I would say that the people who live in, in the uh, company town part of Washington, D.C., uh, certainly talk about these issues more than others, and of course reporters most of all, right? This is uh, a lot of the most remarkable things have come to light about about the the, 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 the months, the weeks and months before and after uh, January 6th. So we are, of course, riveted by a lot of this. Uh, but the short answer is no. The short answer is while uh, a lot of more people are likely to talk about this in D.C., the people in D.C. have some of the same concerns as uh, those elsewhere, which is to say uh, life has gotten a lot more expensive. Filling up your car has become a lot more expensive. You know, th those are those cut across party lines, and so they're 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 pretty potent. Olivia, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. That's Olivia Knox, who hosts the Daily Two Hundred Two at the Washington Post. RN. This is Between the Lines. I'm Kylie Morris. And up next, the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting in Rwanda. What's the purpose and place of Chogham in the modern world? The Australian flag may be flying in the streets of Kigali, but Australia's Prime Minister is not among the VIPs in Rwanda for the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting this week. Anthony Albanese has skipped the first Commonwealth summit to be held in Africa in 15 years and the first ever in a nation with no British colonial history. So what's going on? Does it really matter? And what kind of Commonwealth is currently under construction? Dr Cindy McCreary is a cultural historian and senior lecturer at the University of Sydney. Thanks for joining us on Between the Lines, Dr McCreary. Thank you, Kylie. Now, we've spoken on this program recently about whether Australia is tied up in too many multilateral organisations and should start pairing back. Isn't this just the kind of meeting Anthony Albanese needs to forego in order to concentrate on links in the region? I don't think so, Kylie, because if you look at the Commonwealth, if you look at who's represented, um, it's really dominant. It's an organisation, as you know, of 54 member states, almost all, with the exceptions that you've said of Rwanda and I think one other country, are former members of um, the, what was once known as the British Empire, um, former British colonies. Um, and they have a lot in common. And in particular, the, the countries that dominate the Commonwealth um, include many small Pacific island states who are, of course, Australia's neighbours. Um, and given the importance of Pacific 
uh, affairs, given what we've seen in recent months with concern in Australia at China's uh, increasingly assertive economic and political and military moves to uh, develop ties with Pacific nations, including the Solomon Islands. I think it's really important for Australia to be seen to be engaged with Pacific Island nations. And given that for Pacific Island nations, the Commonwealth is probably their most important international platform, I think it's actually very important that Australia is represented at the highest level at Chogum in Rwanda this week. So I think it's a missed opportunity for Albanese and the government. Yeah, I, I should say that the Deputy Prime Minister, Richard Miles, of course, who had been in India, is attending in Kigali instead. So presumably that should carry suitable diplomatic weight for Australia in order for that presence to be effective. I think Miles' presence is important. And as you've said, he's... Um, uh, both the deputy leader, but he's also, of course, defence minister. And we know that with his talks in India, he has addressed issues of concern, not just with uh, for India or Australia, but for other nations in the Asia-Pacific region about defence. Um, but uh, while his presence is important, I don't think it's efficient. I mean, the, the Commonwealth head of government's meeting is supposed to be just that, the heads of government. Now, in fact, that means not necessarily uh, actual prime ministers, it could include heads of state. So for republics, that would be a president. Uh, and in the case of Australia, of course, our head of state is still the British monarch, Queen Elizabeth II, who's being represented uh, this week by Prince Charles. But I do think that Albanese's absence is um, a missed opportunity. I think that there is a different level of seriousness that's conveyed when a country's prime minister attends Togham as opposed to uh, the deputy leader. As you mentioned, of course, Prince Charles and Camilla, Duchess of Cornwall, are now in Rwanda. Is there messaging there from the royal family that even beyond Queen Elizabeth, the royal family is invested in and present in the future of the Commonwealth? Absolutely. I mean, we, we need to remember that Charles isn't just representing the Queen in the sense of the next British monarch representing his mother, but he's representing uh, the Queen as head of Commonwealth, as he, we know, is the next, uh, will be the next head of the Commonwealth um, once Queen Elizabeth um, passes on. Um, so he is, a, in a sense, already kind of rehearsing for his formal role as the next head of the Commonwealth. But this is a very complicated situation because, of course, Charles has been outspoken, at least in a private capacity, about his apparent disquiet over the British government's plan to send asylum seekers to Rwanda. Um, and that is a policy, of course, that, that British officials have acknowledged is actually borrows much from Australia's own offshore processing of asylum seekers. Um, and Charles is said to be privately at least very unhappy with that. That raises all kinds of issues because, of course, as once Charles becomes the next monarch, the next head of state of Britain, and of course, Australia's head of state, uh, that he is not supposed to be commenting in any way, shape or form on British or indeed Australian or any other country's politics. So this um, discussion is, is quite fraught with danger for Charles's ability to appear in the future uh, as, a, as a sovereign who is supposed, supposedly politically neutral. At the same time, the British royal family has had quite a long tradition of speaking up at certain points at least, about the rights of, of uh, peoples, particularly Indigenous people and other people who are suffering injustice. So, so for groups such as Human Rights Watch or Amnesty International, Prince Charles's alleged comments um, are indeed uh, you know, a, a breath of fresh air and something which they warmly welcome. But it does raise complications about how Charles will navigate the future, both as British monarch, but also as head of the Commonwealth. This is also about Rwanda's re international reputation, isn't it? In the sense that hosting a major event like this presumably brings a great deal of kudos uh, to a country that has for a long time been kind of marginalised uh, by the international community and certainly the Afri African, its African neighbours. So presumably it's important from a Rwandan perspective that this goes well, that all of these VIPs are, you know, uh, in the streets of Kigali, that the meetings go well and that the objectives are, are achieved. Absolutely. It's a very important moment for Rwanda. But I must say this is a very difficult time for the Rwandan president 
Paul Kagame and and his government to be presenting Rwanda to the world as as a peace loving uh, nation that supports the, the Commonwealth's interests in human rights and democracy, because not only is there this furor about Britain sending asylum seekers to Rwanda, but Rwanda itself is coming under increased criticism from human rights activists around the world for its own treatment uh, of its own citizens, um, as well as in recent days, allegations by its neighbor, um, Congo, about possible encouragement uh, by Rwandans of rebels uh, attacking uh, Congo. So there, it's a very complicated moment for Rwanda, and it's very unclear whether or not, in fact, it will manage to pull off a successful Chogum because so much attention may be distracted um, by human rights uh, issues in its own country and um, over, over across the border. I'm Kylie Morris. You're listening to Between the Lines on RN and our guest is Dr Cindy McCreary from the University of Sydney. Um, Dr McCreary, why is Rwanda in the Commonwealth? Why is it hosting this meeting? I mean, it's a bit like Australia joining Eurovision, isn't it? I mean, since, since when do nations with no British colonial history belong to the Commonwealth Group of Nations? Well, Kylie, it's unusual to have a country that wasn't a former British colony as a member of the Commonwealth. But if you look at Rwanda's own history, it's deeply um, entangled in European colonialism in Africa. Um, at one point, Rwanda was under German control, and then it, um, uh, in World War I, um, control moved to, to Belgium. Um, so it is very much a, a, a colony that, that suffered um, exploitation by uh, European colonialism. And indeed, from that point of view, it has a lot in common with its neighbour Congo, but but also nearby African nations like Uganda, which itself was um, under British control, uh, Tanzania, which was under German control, and of course, Kenya, another British former British colony. So in fact, its history is very much linked um, with that, not only of its African neighbours, but with 19th and 20th century European colonialism. So I think in many ways, it's actually a, a pretty representative member of the Commonwealth, given its its history um, uh, and its and its geogra geographical setting. So I think it's quite natural that Rwanda uh, should be in the Commonwealth. And I think it's uh, important that small states and states outside of the global north have a prominent role in the Commonwealth, including by leading uh, these Togum meetings. Um, but as I've said earlier, there are still ongoing concerns about whether Rwanda itself uh, deserves to stay in the Commonwealth, given its human rights record, and whether or not we'll be able to pull off this meeting successfully. The next Secretary General of Chogham is to be decided soon. Among the frontrunners is Jamaica's Foreign Secretary. And it's so interesting, isn't it, that Jamaica has made clear that it's on its way to removing the Queen as its head of state. Would it be an uncomfortable fit to have a senior politician from a Caribbean Republic as the leader of a Commonwealth alliance? I don't think so, Kylie, because if you look at the Commonwealth, um, the vast majority of members of the Commonwealth are indeed republics. And I think that we can expect in future years that the remaining Commonwealth realms, of which there are 15, including the United Kingdom, uh, not all, uh, but I think certainly some of those realms, which currently do, of course, include Jamaica, will indeed move to become republics. So if the majority of nations within the Commonwealth are themselves republics, I would say it's actually more appropriate to have a leader from one of those republics as uh, Commonwealth Secretary General in order to be representative of the, of the majority nations in the Commonwealth. So I actually think it's quite a natural progression. It, it feels like a change, though, doesn't it, in the sense that there would, would have been a time at which, you know, the, the Queen is the head of the Commonwealth and the Queen would have been the least nominal head of the countries that have membership of the Commonwealth. Are the values of the Commonwealth shifting as these political reforms, these new nations joining the Commonwealth fold uh, are taking place? I'm not sure if, if the values are shifting as much as the priorities which the members face today, which we all face, we're, we're all part of the same planet, um, you know, particularly things like climate change, environmental issues, human rights and youth issues. Um, are really coming to the fore. In other words, that the situation which the majority of nations who are Commonwealth members face are becoming, I think quite rightly, the priorities for the overall organisation. Um, so in a, in a community where I think something like 
um, uh, the majority of, of uh, uh, people in Commonwealth nations are under the age of 30. Um, youth issues have to come to the fore. So I think in a sense, it's quite uh, right that not only are small states taking a more prominent role in the Commonwealth, but that the issues that matter to them are also coming to the fore. And I think as well, we, we need to remember that while the Queen is the head of the Commonwealth, and we know that Charles will become the next head of the Commonwealth, there is no necessary connection between the British monarch and the head of the Commonwealth. Um, that's a convention, but it's not a rule. And I could imagine in the future that not only the Secretary General of the Commonwealth, but the actual head of the Commonwealth could also be uh, from smaller Commonwealth nations. There's no reason why we have to have a royal as head of the Commonwealth overall. So indeed, as you describe it, it seems as though the, those new perspectives are bringing those new perspectives and particularly with a kind of youthful focus to the Commonwealth might be necessary for its survival, that it can't stay mired in kind of notions of British history and colonialism, that it needs an update. That's right. But but I think um, what one thing that I hope the Commonwealth doesn't lose is its commitment to its free and voluntary association. I mean, this is a this is not an organization that was established by, by the British enforcing membership on its former colonies. It was absolutely and remains up to individual nations whether or not they wish to join. Uh, and there have been cases of countries which initially were quite hostile to the idea, but later came round. Um, and I think that, you know, the example of South Africa is interesting. Also, nations like South Africa were expelled or told to leave, um, but then when their own situation improved, uh, they rejoined the Commonwealth. And that, that's, I think, an important element uh, of, of the way that the membership uh, is constituted and the, the way it should run. Um, I do hope as well that the traditions of democracy and human rights are considered to be taken seriously. And I mean, that is, I think, always a danger. Um, there is a great deal of instability and political repression uh, in some of the members of the Commonwealth. And it's important that the entire organisation keeps promoting democracy and human rights across the entire membership um, and that they don't turn a blind eye um, to abuses in one or more Commonwealth nations. I should ask, do other former imperial powers like France, for example, or Spain, do they have similar organisations to Chogham comprising their former colonies? So it's it's slightly different. Um, in France, there's actually a more formal um, number of states which we might consider to be um, you know, we might assume to be former members of the of the French Empire, but in fact, there's they still have um, actually formal ties with France, um, for example, and are in some ways almost considered part of France, such as countries within French Polynesia, for example, like Tahiti. But I think the British organization is unique in terms not just of the number of members, um, but the global reach and diversity of 54 member states, um, which which is you know encompassing. Um, particularly Africa and the Pacific, but 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 other parts of the world as well. And I think that's quite a unique organisation in, in its global reach. I guess many Australians, if you ask them to identify the significance of the Commonwealth, you know, would probably start off with the Commonwealth Games uh, and then maybe struggle to find a, a second example of, of how, the, how the Commonwealth intersects with their day-to-day -day lives. I mean, is it time for a rebranding? Does it need relaunching among the more traditional members of the Commonwealth, the Canadas, the South Africas, the Australias, so that we recognise that actually it is, a, as you describe it, an organisation where smaller nations, many of them developing nations, are finding a shared voice? I, I think it does, Kylie. I mean, it's interesting that the theme of this week's Chogham in Rwanda is delivering a common future. Um, and the idea that there is 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 helping all member states to um, provide, you know, a, a, a fairer, more equitable, more democratic and sustainable future. But I do agree that countries like Australia and Canada, which although we are 
thinking about Australia and New Zealand, although we're located globally in the South, we are very much part of the global North. We're wealthy nations with still very strong uh, economic and cultural ties to the Northern Hemisphere. I do think it's important that we take our responsibility as members of the Commonwealth seriously. Um, a former Australian diplomat told me recently that Australia doesn't really have a very large diplomatic footprint. We don't have loads and loads of ambassadors and consular staff around the world. But the Commonwealth provides us with a relatively low-cost way of, I think, engaging with other nations uh, in, on an equal platform. And so I think it's something that we should take seriously. And I think it's, it is a shame that that our Prime Minister, and also I should say the uh, New Zealand Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, are foregoing uh, uh, travel to Kigali this week uh, in favour of a NATO meeting in Spain next week. But, you know, given what we know about air travel, it seems to be entirely possible that they could do both if they wish to. And I do think it's a shame that, that neither is. Thanks, Cindy, for sharing your thoughts on Chogham and the meeting this week in Rwanda. A great pleasure. Dr Cindy McCreary, cultural historian and senior lecturer at the University of Sydney. On RN, this is Between the Lines. I'm Kylie Morris. And up next, does Australia overlook and underestimate the agency and autonomy of Pacific Island nations? After years of lukewarm interest, Pacific Island nations are now well and truly front and centre of Australia's strategic and diplomatic outreach. And it's not just Australia, of course. Bigger powers like the US and China have also ramped up their own efforts to win friends and influence people in the Pacific. But is there more than a slight whiff of colonialism on the wind? Has the agency of Pacific Island nations been underestimated and overlooked? Stephen Ratsuva, a Fijian academic now based in New Zealand, thinks so. Stephen is a professor at the University of Canterbury in Christchurch, New Zealand, and director of the Macmillan Brown Centre for Pacific Studies. Steve, welcome to Between the Lines. Thanks for joining us. Oh, how would you characterise or assess the way Australia's approached their engagement with Pacific Island nations? Australia's policy has been, if you like, formal policy driven, not so much uh, to do with uh, um, attitudinal changes. There have been changes in policy um, from the 1980s to 1990s, uh, and then the, the uh, step up policy, and then the Wu Valley policy. So there have been a series of changes in terms of policies. But there hasn't been much in terms of changes in attitude in the way in which they frame the Pacific. Uh, it's a kind of a putting a new wine into all bottles kind of uh, approach, which means that uh, uh, a lot of these subconscious, a lot of these subtle and implicit perception of the Pacific are still very much uh, embedded in the new policies, uh, which they hope would uh, bring about changes in the relationship with the Pacific Island states or the big ocean states, I would say. But uh, I don't think much has changed in terms of that. It's much more to do with the subtleties of of perception and engagement, not so much the policy directions. Policies may have changed slightly over the years, but not so much the perception. When you you talk about new wine in old bottles, what would you like to see? How would you measure an attitudinal shift which you think is more appropriate to the future of Australia's engagement with the Pacific? Well, one is the narratives coming out um, when um, uh, Morrison referred to the Pacific as our backyard. That's the most insulting term one can use. The, we use the backyard to dump all the bad things. Uh, you hide your wrecked cars, your wrecked furniture in the backyard. So the question is, who's the front yard? So we don't see ourselves as a backyard. We see ourselves as neighbours, much more friendly, much more inclusive, much more equitable. Uh, and uh, so, uh, uh, and uh, 
And of course, the lecturing, which Pacific Island states keeps getting from Australia in terms of keep away from China. Uh, and they uh, do diplomatic, um, you know, running around when the Chinese are around as if don't talk to them because you're, it's as if they're saying you're not smart enough, you're not sophisticated enough, you don't know anything about geopolitics, leave it to us. We are the smart ones. We are the powerful ones. So those are the kinds of messages coming out. Uh, although it might look like diplomatic leveraging on the surface, but the subtle messages which are coming out is very different. I get a sense from you then that the, it's not a very consistent effort, that it's ramped up when there are threats, i.e. China, um, to Australia's reach in the region uh, that are more present. That's when Australia gets really engaged. But when there's not that imminent threat, it's not as active. Yeah, I mean, it depends on what you mean by threat. I mean, from the Australian, from the, if you like, the Anglo-Western framing of threat, yes. of security, is very much uh, based on the US view of the world, uh, the them versus us. And after the uh, 9-11, Australia framed itself along that line uh, in many ways. So to them, they defined the threat to the Pacific Island states in relation to their own threat. So uh, uh, whether it's to do with uh, uh, what happened to Solomon Islands, what happened in uh, uh, recently uh, in the Pacific with China coming in and uh, trying to uh, uh, get the Pacific states to sign a multilateral agreement. So Australia sees that as its own threat to itself and the, the Western interests uh, being threatened by China's presence in the Pacific. But the Pacific Ocean states see that differently. The threat, which is uh, how the big powers define threat, is not so much the definition. So, uh, uh, and what Australia and uh, the US have been doing is to tell the Pacific Island states, uh, look, this is a threat. Their definition of threat becomes theirs. They impose their threat definition onto them. Mm -hmm. It's another, if you like, ideological colonial framing uh, of their neighbors. Uh, the, uh, not just Australia, when the US uh, Secretary of State came into the Pacific uh, to beef up the Indo-Pacific, uh, security arrangement. Uh, they went to Fiji and got together uh, the leaders of the island states and precisely for that purpose, telling them, uh, this is your threat. But it's really the U.S. definition of threat being imposed on the Pacific, which really does not constitute any threat to the Pacific island states in terms of their framing of threat. So you have uh, the imposition of a threat definition by Australia and by the United States being imposed on the Pacific and expecting them to assimilate them and to use the definition. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, uh, at that level, uh, there's another colonial uh, process taking place. Stephen, can I ask you, uh, I mean, that your point is well made. I'm wondering how uh, powers like China are viewed by Pacific Island nations broadly, and I know it's not, there's probably not one homogenous view, but you kind of neighbor to neighbor when there are conversations about China proposing a new infrastructure development or some kind of an agreement. Is there skepticism about that, or is that taken at face value? Uh, the mixture. Uh, there's, an, there's perception from the, uh, say the Western powers that uh, dealing with the Chinese is actually uh, uh, not good for the Pacific Island security when, in fact, uh, from the point of view of the Pacific states, uh, it's just another economic deal which they, you know, uh, engage with uh, uh, the same way with other countries like Australia and New Zealand. Australia and New Zealand, they have bilateral deals with China as well, and there's no reason why. Pacific Island states should do the same thing. So they see China as another economic power but they see Australia and New Zealand as much closer to them as being part of the big cultural Anglo-Western cultural system. They've been brought up uh, in that system through colonialism, through a post-colonial uh, period, and through education, and through uh, uh, Christianity, through uh, sports, through all sorts of cultural connection. So the Chinese are seen not as uh, being accepted as uh, the new cultural and the new ideological and the new political friend, but rather simply seen as somebody who can provide some aid anyway. So there's an overreaction there by the Western powers. So uh, the island states are, are quite uh, 
uh, strategic as well. They choose what's best for them, and they reject what is not good for them. Like uh, previously, in the last couple of weeks, they rejected the original multilateral agreement because they realized that it was very much uh, a Chinese colonial uh, hegemonic approach to controlling the Pacific in terms of security, politics, economics, and so forth. And instead, they signed bilateral deals. Even bilateral deals, even within countries in the Pacific themselves, they're beginning, they've been raising questions about Chinese aid itself, like in the case of Fiji, uh, the quality or Samoa or Cook Islands, the quality of the aid provided by China has not been very good. So they, uh, uh, they make decisions uh, based on, um, you know, uh, on a nuanced approach rather than uh, just taking in everything and absorbing everything Chinese. You describe a nuanced approach and I, I guess a strategic approach, but is it is there a shared strategy at work between Pacific Island nations when it comes to responding to this? Or is each nation really looking at their own self-interest, each Pacific Island state looking at their own self-interest and, and, and they're driven by that? By and large, they do things differently, independently, on their own. Solomon Islands has a particular historical, a particular political, uh, you know, circumstances, uh, which they try to address. Fiji has totally different historical, economic, and political uh, circumstances, the same way as Samoa and uh, Tonga and the Cook Islands, um, and so forth. So they, they do things differently at one, at, at some level, uh, through the forum and through other regional engagement, they do discuss some of the uh, common strategies towards aid donors, towards the regional development, uh, like climate, for instance. Uh, it's a big issue in the Pacific right now. But at the operational day-to-day level, uh, different countries have specific interests. Um, they have different developmental interests to build infrastructures, to build you know, things like roads and public buildings, and also well-being issues to do with health, to do with education. So uh, that's where individual countries exercise their initiative as sovereign independent states to deal directly with China or any other country for that matter, New Zealand, Australia, um, uh, and international agencies like the World Bank, for instance, and the European Union, the Asian Development Bank, uh, to address some of the specific unique problems which they have. On RN, this is Between the Lines. I'm Kylie Morris and my guest is Professor Stephen Ratsuva, who's director of the Macmillan Brown Centre for Pacific Studies at the University of Canterbury in New Zealand. You write, Stephen, that, that the real winner of the recent diplomatic battle was the Pacific Big Ocean states. Can you explain that to me? Why do you reach that conclusion? Yeah, in geopolitics, there's always a uh, claim to who's the winner, who's the loser. Uh, the Chinese went away saying, ha it was a very, very, uh, you know, very successful trip to the Pacific. But they failed to sell the big document, the big project for regional multilateral agreement. But they managed to get uh, the individual countries to sign the bilateral agreement. Um, the, the, the Anglo-Western powers, I suppose, Australia and New Zealand, they would have... Um, you know, uh, although they did not deliberate, they did not explicitly state it, but they would have said, "Ah, yes, our diplomatic leveraging in the Pacific by sending foreign affairs new sort of the, the foreign minister to the Pacific may have worked." So both sides may be claiming victory, but I think what's not seen is the fact that, uh, to a great extent, the big ocean states themselves they made the decision. Uh, without any pressure from either side, uh, what's best for them. And that's, I think, what they, what they did eventually to sign bilateral agreement based on individual projects, which they have been, uh, in many cases, in most cases, they have been negotiating for some time anyway. So uh, so everything came to a halt. There was a, you know, a big um, media frenzy, and then it just died out uh, simply because, uh, at the end of the day, the big ocean states they signed the bilateral agreement. It's a normal thing, which most countries in the world do with China, and that was it. So, you know, in some ways, they can claim victory as well. Everybody will claim victory anyway in geopolitics. Even if you win a little battle and lose a 
the big war, uh, you still can, can claim victory. And I think China claimed victory. Uh, and I think both uh, Australia and New Zealand may have done the same thing. Uh, but I think the, the real victors here, which are uh, not publicly uh, articulated, uh, would be the, the big ocean states themselves. You touched earlier on the use of aid and, and some scepticism about aid projects, for example, aid projects funded by China that may not have been very effective or very um, well-managed or well-built in the end and how that's created maybe a sense of scepticism among some small island nations. Of course, you know, aid, aid is seen as very effective leverage by lots of different states, not only China, but also, of course, Australia and New Zealand and the US. And it's easy to brand it as an act of altruism and you know, being a good neighbour. Is that how it's interpreted by, by Pacific Island states? Yeah, I mean, aid is very, very powerful uh, diplomatic, political and ideological leverage. All states in the world, the big ones, uh, the, the aid donors, they, they use aid, although they don't talk about it. Uh, they justify it uh, using uh, humanitarian, by using um, uh, very altruistic uh, justifications, but they are very, very subtle uh, strings which are, which are there. And every dip- diplomat knows that. So the Pacific Island state, uh, the big ocean states in the Pacific, uh, they're both welcoming at the same time, have their eyes open and, and the interest about the kind of aid they get, not only from China, but from Australia, from New Zealand. Australia, Australian aid is being uh, branded as uh, boomerang aid over the years. Uh, they know very well uh, the fact that most of the, uh, the aid money actually goes back. One estimate shows that about 70 to 90 percent goes back to Australia. In fact, it remains in Australia. It doesn't actually leave Australia because most of the contractors where the money is going are Australian uh, big corporations. Uh, same thing with New Zealand. I wrote a paper on that in relation to New Zealand. And the same with China. Uh, the Exim Bank of China loans to its own company and they come and build a road there uh, and bring their own workers. And uh, uh, most of the money remains in China. So it's it's a very deceptive game of diplomacy where money doesn't actually leave the shores of the donors. And the Pacific uh, uh, big ocean states are beginning to realize the fertility of some of those acts of generosity. And, um, and they're all different in the way they do it. Uh, Australia does it differently. It focuses more on institutional reform and capacity building and all those things. You can't, you ask somebody on the streets of Suva or Onyara or Apia, um, can you show me any evidence of Australian aid? They won't be able to point at anything because it's all to do with institutional kind of uh, capacity building, rearrangement and all those. But if you ask them, can you show me something which the Chinese have given you? They will point, ah, yes, that road. Oh, yes, that building. Uh, they're everywhere because the Chinese, they focus more on infrastructure. Visibility matters to them in terms of diplomatic leveraging. So uh, so they're quite different. Although uh, those infrastructures are of very, very poor quality. Uh, you don't need a cyclone to blow them out, uh, to, to, uh, to, to, uh, uh, you know, to disintegrate them. All you need is a little breeze from the south, uh, southeast. So, uh, uh, and they're conscious of that as well. So they're conscious of the uh, pros and cons of the kind of aid uh, they get. And they, uh, but in some cases, because they, uh, they, they don't uh, have the, the means to be able to provide the alternative to aid, they just accept it. Uh, and, uh, and see how it goes uh, in terms of how it fits into the uh, um, uh, development agenda, uh, into the budgetary allocation, uh, and so forth. So, uh, yeah, they, they, they too are playing uh, nuanced gaming in that area. Uh, the economics of aid is different from the politics of aid. Um, the politics of aid is a public impression that the country is being gen- generous to the recipients in the Pacific. Uh, a lot of that money actually benefits uh, those the big contractors. And the, some of those contractors are pretty big. Yeah. Steve, thanks so much for giving us the time. We really appreciate you speaking with us today. Yeah, thank you so much. That's Stephen Ratuva, so Professor at the University of Canterbury in Christchurch, New Zealand, and Director of the Macmillan Brown Centre for Pacific Studies. 
And that's the show. Thanks for your company. I'm Kylie Morris, sitting in for Tom Switzer. More from Between the Lines next week. Until then, bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.